From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, thinking about the, the healthcare system, as many of us have been interacting with it pre and during and post COVID, I think one of the things we've all noticed related or not related to COVID is that many of our medical practitioners have switched or merged practices or now worked with a hospital. And interestingly enough, um, Bernstein has done a lot of research on medical practices, healthcare groups, dental groups about what's changing in that industry. And I thought this would be a really interesting time to share that research with you. And to do that, I've asked the author of this research, Daniel Brunello, who's a director in our Wealth Strategies group, down in Houston to, to share with us some of his findings. Daniel, thanks for joining today. Hi, hi, Mark. Daniel, I think everyone has noticed what we would fancy in the finance world call consolidation in the, in the healthcare space. Why is that happening? It didn't seem like it happened 10 years ago. Right, um, there has been a massive consolidation in the healthcare space uh, and the primary driver of it is uh, healthcare reimbursement rates. So what the insurers are paying the uh, practices for their services. And uh, scale has become much more important to negotiate better payment rates for, from the payers. And so what you see is consolidation, whether it's uh, groups gobbling up other uh, practices, hospitals buying up practices, or private equity-backed funds buying up practices. All of these um, uh, have the interest of creating scale and better negotiation rates to, to improve their payments that they receive. So, so in some ways, right, in, in the very basics, it's, it's like going to Costco as opposed to your local drugstore, right? If you're, if you're a big player, a big group, you've got a lot more leverage or negotiating power with the insurers than if you're a, a solo, solo physician taking care of patients, right? It's just that, that simple. That's a perfect analogy. Of course, uh, you know that's a ten thousand foot level. It's a there's a lot of complexity in it, but that's a, a major driving force. And then you also have the expense side, right? As you consolidate with with uh, any business, um, you're able to consolidate uh, operations and and uh, reduce uh, overhead expenses. So so that's office staff. There was a lot of talk. I don't know if it's still relevant. Electronic medical records, all those things that that cost beyond just treating someone, right. you, you can you can divide amongst a, a larger set of physicians, right? So again, kind of yeah. simple economics in that regard. Yeah, and it, and it is uh, a lot of those expenses are driven by the healthcare legislation that do require the, the electronic medical records, uh, which is very expensive to implement. And uh, a lot of uh, practices need uh, need the financial resources and backing and scale to to be able to uh, better afford those uh, enhancements uh, required expenses that they now have so it seems like kind of a perfect storm you've got legislation making the, the cost of running a medical practice go up you've got um consolidation being relevant in how you negotiate with your insurers more than ever before and i'm guessing for some of these financial buyers the fact that there's so much money floating around and low interest rates makes it an interesting time to to buy any cash flow business, let alone a medical one, right? Exactly. Um, there is a lot of money in uh, private equity uh, seeking deals. And uh, so a lot of practices are receiving unsolicited offers 
um, as they go about their day um, that uh, the, these private equity funds are, are approaching practices and, and looking to consolidate them. So, so let's talk about, you touched on three types of buyers, private equity, kind of think of that as more behind the scenes, right? As a patient, you may not see that as much. The, the hospital, where all of a sudden your physician works at Cornell or Columbia or wherever, and, and the super groups. Can you take us through on each in your research, maybe the pros and cons for the doctor, but also the whys, why each different group is interested in this? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start with uh, the hospitals are, are kind of the simplest to, to explain. And these were rampant uh, uh, buyers a few years ago. Um, and when they buy up a, a medical practice, they are buying just the assets, uh, the physical assets, and 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 acquiring the physicians on an employment contract. Um, it's kind of the most simple uh, deal. It it helps the practice owner alleviate uh, future risk associated with the practice and offloads all their their administrative uh, burdens to the hospital group. Um, on the flip side, it. Uh, it uh, limits uh, potentially the, the practice owner's future upside potential, but it gives them stability. And so that's uh, very attractive. Um, for, the, for the large medical groups on the and the private equity, they're, they're very similar in many regards in, in uh, that they're consolidating practices and they're looking uh, to, to create scale and leverage and, and reduce expenses. But um, with the medical practice group roll-ups, they're often still owned by physicians and they may or may not be seeking to um, sell the practices again in the future. Um, and so that is a big difference between the, the medical group roll-ups and the private equity backed roll-ups. When you have a private equity backed financial buyer, they are coming into the deal knowing that they're planning on merging a bunch of practices together in, under the umbrella of a MSO, a management service organization, which serves as um, their, their entity that, that uh, provides uh, operational services to all the practices. And then they plan to sell the practice usually within the next five years again. And so there will be a, a stream of, of uh, transactions in the future with a private equity backed that might be the case on a, on a super medical group as well, but it's not always the plan. It depends on, on the exact group. If I'm a doctor and I'm getting approached or I'm just thinking about advanced partner, why do I like one of these versus another, right? I'm sure there's better fits for, for some physicians than another. So, so how do they evaluate or do they even care which they wind up in? They absolutely care. Um, the the uh, culture of the buyer is perhaps the most important um, consideration for a practice seller because uh, you know unlike a, a lot of businesses usually a uh, practice owner a physician is going to continue to work uh, under the new owner right they want to they're going from owner to to effectively employee. And that's a tough transition for many. So they, they have to have a good cultural fit with the, the new owner. Um, for, for practice owners who are planning to retire within a couple of years, um, 
perhaps the private equity back group is more attractive because it's often the largest uh, uh, payout compensation uh, for selling your practice from those uh, funds. And, and they know that uh, their, their time frame is relatively short. Maybe they stay on for two or three years. Um, and so they don't have to worry long-term about multiple transactions and the impact on, on them. While uh, a, a physician who is planning uh, to, to continue on practicing for many years might be a little bit more concerned about the, the future ownership um, and, and multiple transactions. And they might prefer to, to consolidate into a group that uh, is not bent on uh, reselling trans transactions in the future. Now, you alluded to this. This can obviously have an impact on compensation. I, I also take it that it has an impact on your equity, right? Your ownership stake. So can you talk a bit about how a doctor or, or dentist or, or physician in this situation should think about the equity component in some of these deals? Because I, I recognize that's a, that's a big part of the economics. Absolutely. So in a uh, private equity deal, uh, what often happens is the uh, owner is, is offered uh, to keep some ownership in the new business. And so they might receive a, a cash payout upfront of let's say 75% of their current value of ownership. And they will roll 25% of their equity into the new entity. So let's say a practice is valued at $10 million. That means that they'll get paid seven and a half million dollars up front to, divided by all the partners in the practice. And 25% or two and a half million dollars is rolled into equity uh, with the private equity group um, uh, for the MSO. And that is expected to increase in value depending on how the practice grows and the other practices that are acquired um, into the future. And so that two and a half million dollars might grow to two or three times that amount over the next say five years, ideally. And so that two and a half million dollars could balloon to $5 million or more for that practice owner, creating a nice uh, second liquidity event for, for that uh, physician. That is- And then they've got to stay on, on right? I mean, equity backed funds. And, and most often though, that, that, that physician has to think, okay, if I'm gonna be, a, I, I have to want to practice for the next three to five years to, to partake in that second bite of the apple, that second liquidity event, right? Right, um, there, there are different uh, structures that can always be uh, negotiated that might allow a doctor to exit uh, before that event, um, but uh, each deal is different. As, as they uh, say, if you've seen one deal, you've seen one deal. Um, so <laughs> customized. Uh, and some of them have earnouts, right? Where there, there are targets for the practice and, and, and hitting those targets can change the compensation structure. Absolutely. That's a, that's another, um, um, structure that, uh, you know, depends on various metrics, uh, that, that can be customized for each deal. Maybe it's, uh, maintaining that the, the practice hits its revenue targets that, um, that are, uh, projected. And if the revenue targets are, are hit, the doctor uh, receives a certain amount of compensation as part of the deal. Um, a lot of uh, uh, practices might, might have an earnout related to employee retention. They know that the, um, the owner has an influence over the employees. 
and this is a, a big part of these uh, transactions is, is keeping those employees in place, whether they're practitioners or, or staff, um, creating low turnover helps that practice succeed going forward because it helps you helps you keep not only your staff, but your patients engaged um, and, and stay, sticking with the practice. I want to get into the weeds a little bit here in that a, a number of healthcare practices own the real estate, they own the office that they're practicing out of. How should the physician think about the real estate? Is that part of the sale? Does it have to be? Is it not? Is that an asset they should hold on to separate from the practice? How does your team think about the real estate? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question, Mark, because um, the real estate uh, for, for many practices is already owned in a separate entity from the practice. Some, some do own it all combined with the medical practice, but uh, it is a great opportunity um, right now to consider that asset, whether or not uh, a practice is considering selling the practice itself, there has been a tremendous demand for medical office space. Um, and so the demand is high for medical real estate. And a lot of practices are selling the real estate out from under them and leasing it back. So they're not moving, but they're able to create a large liquidity event by selling their real estate, which is a very attractive uh, way to, to either help the uh, practice owners um, you know, fund their retirement or to, uh, to liquidate uh, uh, funds to be able to reinvest into the practice and, and help them grow if that's, uh, if that's the case. Uh, so this is a, a big trend and a lot of buyers out there looking for medical real estate um, and, and they turn out to be great transactions for many practices. You, you talked about structure of deal. One of the things your team talked about in their research is the distinction between an asset sale and a stock sale, mm -hmm. which I think for many who don't, you know, spend their day in financial markets and, you know, if you're just treating patients and focused on that, God bless. But I think this is a, an area that could be new to them if they haven't gone down the transaction path before. So what's the distinction between the asset and stock sale? Sure. So if you have a stock sale, it's it's just like if you're buying um, a stock on the public market, Google. You're buying you're buying shares of the company. Uh, with a medical practice buying buying the stock of the medical practice, you're buying ownership in the in the practice, and uh, you're buying all the assets and liabilities that that go with that. You're a full partial owner. Um, with the asset sale, which is much much more common in these transactions. Uh, the buyer is able to cherry pick what they want to buy. Do they want to buy the office and equipment? Um, do they want to buy the liabilities? Usually not, right? So they're able to um, pick which assets are attractive that they're willing to pay for and avoid the ones that they, that they don't prefer to acquire, notably staying away from the liabilities that, that uh, are, are, are not good for them. Does that mean that the, that the physician then gets stuck with the liabilities? Right, so uh, um, they'll structure it to, to um, protect uh, the, the owners. Uh, ultimately, um, yeah, the, the liabilities, uh, depending on what those are, um, if it's accounts payable, right, um, that will have to be uh, discussed and negotiated in, in the transaction. 
but uh, yeah, a lot of times, um, depending on what the liability is, the, the new owner doesn't want to um, expose themselves to historical uh, risk liabilities. Um, and that's another thing that we discuss in the papers is recognizing all the risks that uh, are inherent in practices and for owners to, to recognize in, in selling their practice that they need to manage not only their earnings and assets and revenue, but mitigate those risks for a potential buyer. So let's step out of the moment of the transaction for a second. Let's pretend you're a practitioner and you're not ready to sell, but you want to grow the business because you know there's now a market out there, right? For, the, for maybe the first time or, or until recent times, you thought, I'll, I'll grow this business and you know, bring in a junior partner and he'll take it over down the road or she'll take it over down the road. And now you're thinking, okay, there's a market for me as a business. What should a, a, a medical group or a physician do today to prepare and increase the practice value? How, what do the buyers want, right? How do you prepare so that when the time comes, you, you're the most attractive candidate for purchase? Sure. Um, it starts by, by, hiring uh, qualified help, right, to, to engage with experienced professionals that have done transactions and notably experienced accountant and healthcare M&A attorney, as well as a practice consultant or investment banker. Um, they're going to help you identify the various things that you can do with your practice to help increase its value. Uh, notably, the, the headline thing is to know your numbers. Um, a lot of uh, practice owners, um, you know, focus on, on the practice of medicine and uh, don't necessarily pay close attention to the numbers that are being generated. The, uh, the numbers matter. That's what determines the value of the practice largely. What is the revenue and the profitability or, or the earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation, otherwise known as EBITDA, of the practice? Knowing those numbers and growing those numbers over a multi-year period adds value to your practice. And the larger the value of the practice, and this could speak to the notion of consolidation and private equity, often the larger the, the multiple, right? So you take the, the profit, the, the amount of money the practice is making, and then you times it by something, and that's what the transactions were, right? As you get more profitable, often that multiple is more. So that, that's the exponential growth potential here if you're positioned right. Absolutely. Um, a small practice, uh, you know, might get a, a three times a multiple on their earnings, while a larger practice might get a, a double digit multiple on their earnings. And so size does matter. And if you are able to successfully grow the practice, you are um, increasing not only your profits, but you're increasing the value of your practice too. Uh, you know, for example, if you have a $100,000 increase in your profits um, and you get a, you, you've grown to the size where you deserve a 10% a multiple, 10 times 100,000, you've, you've increased the value of your potential future sale by a million dollars. And you also have to stand out in the in the industry, right? And maybe industry is too small, too large of a term, but but you want to compare favorable favorably to the doctor or dentist next door, right? So there there are ways that a private equity or a a, a larger physicians network would compare you versus your peers. And the better you're comparing relative, it seems logical, right? That that gets you more money on your exit. 
You're, you're exactly right. Um, you do need to kind of know what uh, the industry standards are for, for your specialty group. Uh, what uh, are the average earnings and, and revenue for your specialty group? And you want to be above average. You want to stick out in the crowd as being attractive. Uh, a lot of practices um, that, that are attractive have EBITDA earnings uh, greater than 30% uh, of revenue, right? Um, and so that's kind of a, just a, a, a starting point to, to consider, but it is good to know the industry, know the specialty group, what is the average in the group and, and strive to, to be significantly above average to stick out in the crowd and, and be very attractive. And you talk more about this in this paper, but just to highlight things like your intangible assets, the technology you have, the reputation that you have, the types of patients, all those things drive a better multiple. So I, I take it that, that was part of your first recommendation. If you have a, um, a healthcare consultant in there, they, they can create ways that will get you a better multiple and better revenue. And that, that just has such a big impact if you have years to prepare. Absolutely. It, it takes time. Um, you know, this is a, you know, one of, one of the mistakes that some practice owners uh, make is, is deciding, okay, I want to sell. How quickly can I sell? Well, if you are able to give yourself time to plan it out and, uh, and properly prepare the practice, you can find that, uh, that uh, there could be a significant increase in the value of your practice given the, given the time frame available. Now, last question, right? We're, we're talking a lot about healthcare. Um, not everyone's ready to sell, right? Not everyone wants to sell. It's not the right time in their practice. It's not their goals, objectives, whatever. But we're in finance, right? We're wealth managers. Financial considerations are critical here. What, what's maybe the best planning tool or piece of advice you would give physicians who are actively working and are thinking about savings? What's like the best um, after tax, after tax savings tool you, we have out there that particularly works well for physicians? Yeah, so a lot of physician groups um, benefit greatly from what's called a cash balance plan. And, you know, like uh, many professionals, uh, uh, physician groups are very concerned with uh, deferring and protecting themselves against income taxes, as well as uh, asset protection vehicles, investment vehicles. And a cash balance plan magnifies the amount that you can save on a tax deferred basis above what a 401k and profit sharing plan can offer uh, to the extent where you could have somebody who is say a 60 year old, 60 year old owner of a, a firm practice that they could defer up to $300,000 in a, in a plan tax uh, deferred. And that's gonna save them over $100,000 a year on the income tax currently, and a lot of those assets to grow tax deferred in a asset protected uh, vehicle. So let me just stop you there because that's that's three hundred thousand versus you know a fraction of that in a four hundred one k or profit sharing plan. And in, in many cases, at a point in one's life where trying to save for retirement is critical, and oh by the way, the number you use that's going to save you one hundred thousand dollars in current year income taxes. So that that's checking all the boxes, and and you also noted that there's some asset protection involved in that as well. Absolutely. Cash balance plan is, is a uh, plan that's a, a RISA plan. So it is completely uh, sanctioned by, by the IRS code. And uh, 
it's it's a great plan for the right practices. And and cash balance plans, I don't want to get too much into these, but they, they have some um, nuances that make them particularly interesting, often for medical and sometimes law practices, right? Just because the nature of who's a partner, who's not, who gets included. So, so you know, this isn't something we talk about with everyone, but if you're trying to save for retirement and you're in a, a well, I don't know what the way to think about it, like a partnership or a group practice or even a solo practitioner, th this could kind of jump out of right. the chart in terms of great idea. Yeah, so, um, a couple of metrics are, are is, is practice owners that have the ability and desire to save more than what they're currently saving and that their practice ratio of owners or partners relative to, to staff is no more than 10, 10 staff to one owner. And if you hit those metrics, it could be the right uh, potential solution for, for you. And I should note, we're, we're one of the leading industry experts on this space. We've got a team and, and a, a nationally renowned expert solely on cash balances. So if you're listening to this and you say, I got to understand more about this, please reach out to us because we're about as good as you, you get in terms of research in that space. Um, Daniel, this was super helpful. Super informative. I really appreciate you taking the time and joining today. No problem. I enjoyed the conversation, Mark. To our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com. Or as always, you can call me directly at 212-969-6655. For any questions or comments on this podcast, as a reminder, we've done podcasts this year on the state of healthcare pre and post COVID and how the industry is evolving. We've got market updates just on the broader economy and and tax packages and, and tax planning around the Biden administration. So lots of topics up there on the web on the website and on iTunes if you're interested. And make sure to like us or or review us wherever that helps other people find the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>